Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. This set of episodes is on the War of Austrian Succession. And in the second part, I will talk about the 1730s and two wars which happened leading up to the War of Austrian Succession. The War of Polish Succession and the War of Jenkins Ear. Last week I described how in the early 1720s the population of Europe experienced a temporary respite from warfare. Rulers had become more interested in working for the betterment of their subjects and establishing a balance of power to avoid further conflict. However, the personalised nature of monarchies still meant that personal idiosyncrasies and dynastic considerations tended to predominate and to undermine attempts to systematise international relations. The author Reed Browning, in his book on the Austrian succession, identifies four key rivalries between the European powers of the 18th century, all of which could be traced back to at least the previous century. The first was a struggle between France and Austria for influence in Germany. The second was between Austria and Spain as rivals in a conflict over territory in Italy. The third involved Britain and Spain in the competition for trade in America. And the fourth cast Britain and France as adversaries in a contest for dominance in the continent. The Franco-Imperial conflict had heightened during the reign of King Louis XIV of France, who made repeated attempts to conquer imperial territory on its northwestern and western borders, and succeeded in capturing numerous border towns and the regions of Alsace and Franche-Comté. The German population remembered the brutality of the French troops, especially the infamous devastation of the Platinate of 1688 to 89. The Austro-Spanish rivalry in Italy was essentially dynastic. Spain had long been a dominant foreign power in Italy, ruling in the 16th and 17th centuries in both Naples and Milan. But this had been the Spain of the Habsburgs, and Vienna and Madrid 
Gotan reasonably amicably. The accession of the new Bourbon dynasty in Spain meant that both Spain and Austria now had rival claims at both ends of the Italian peninsula. The smouldering conflict between Austria and Spain was intensified after 1716 when King Philip V of Spain married the Italian princess Elizabeth Farnese. Since Philip had already produced an heir for Spain with his first wife, she was determined to secure inheritance for any children she might have by him, and eventually there were two sons, Don Carlos and Don Philip. Since Philip V had a long-standing resentment at the loss of Spain's Italian possessions, he was easily persuaded to seek titles for his sons in Italy. The third great conflict between England and Spain was commercial rather than dynastic, for control of the growing trade in the Americas. One source of tension was that, during the War of Spanish Succession, England captured the port of Gibraltar and the Mediterranean island of Menorca, and neither of these were returned in the final peace. An agreement to return them at first looked possible, but grew more unlikely as the two countries went further apart. France was another rival to the English for overseas trade, especially in North America, but their rivalry also extended across the continent of Europe. France had the greater land army, and in the War of Spanish Succession was only halted in her ambitions by an alliance of nearly all other Western powers. Britain, on the other hand, enjoyed greater naval might. What these two powers sought in Europe was not so much territory as influence. The various existing tensions between rival powers were compounded by uncertainties over dynastic succession. In Britain, the rule of the Hanoverian king, George I, was disputed by the son of James II, James Francis Stuart, nicknamed the Old Pretender, a fact exploited by England's enemies, especially France. In France itself, there was concern about the Bourbon dynasty until Louis XV could marry and produce a male heir. Above all, there was uncertainty in Austria and the Empire, which made the Austrian succession the main issue in the diplomacy of the period. Emperor Charles VI was the last male Habsburg, which raised two questions. Firstly, who would inherit the hereditary lands? And secondly, who would succeed to the imperial title? Imperial law forbade a woman becoming emperor, and so the lack of a male heir meant that, with his demise, the title of emperor would pass to a non-Habsburg after several centuries in the family. The senior female Habsburg were the two daughters of Charles's elder brother, the late Emperor Joseph I. However, they were married to two of the electors, Bavaria and Saxony. If either sister received the inheritance, it would, in effect, fall to their husbands, who would most likely also be elected emperor. Charles was determined to keep the title of Emperor out of the hands of his rival dynasties and within the Habsburg line. So he drafted what became known as the Pragmatic Sanction, whereby the daughters of Joseph I renounced their hereditary claims in favour of the daughters of Charles VI, 
the eldest of whom was the Archduchess Maria Theresa. Charles sought a credible princely consort for her from some modest family that could not pretend to outrank the Habsburgs. To consolidate this arrangement, he needed to secure the election of Maria Theresa's husband as emperor when Charles died. To secure this succession, Charles needed to get international recognition, which involved difficult negotiations. Some historians are highly critical of Charles's obsession with his own succession. Benjamin Curtis, in his book on the Habsburgs, says he, quote, footed away his nearly three decades of rule, extracting worthless promises from other powers to acknowledge the inheritance of Maria Theresa, end quote. Meanwhile, he adds, he let decline into decrepitude the means of making them respect those promises, namely the military might built up by his predecessors, Leopold and Joseph. The Austrian and Bohemian estates ratified the pragmatic sanction without much trouble by 1721. The Hungarian Diet drove a harder bargain, exacting a promise from Charles that his dynasty would respect all of the Hungarian nobles' privileges. Nonetheless, the sanction was accepted by Hungary and Transylvania by 1723, and in the Austrian Netherlands and Lombardy by 1725. Charles also gained recognition from the German princes, but again at a price. To Frederick August of Saxony, he pledged to support his candidacy to the Polish throne, and to Frederick William of Prussia, he agreed to acknowledge his recent territorial acquisitions. The accession of George Ludwig, elector of Hanover, to the crown of England, meant that the two states were now dynastically tied. George and his Hanoverian ministers brought with them a wealth of experience and knowledge of continental affairs. In spite of public suspicion that George acted foremost in the interest of Hanover rather than England, in fact the interests of both coincided for the most part. And the connection helped the English policy of attempting to maintain a balance of power on the continent so that no one power could acquire hegemony and so threaten her own interests. At the head of government in London was Robert Walpole, known today as Britain's first Prime Minister, although such a title did not yet exist. His period of office is usually considered to begin in April 1721, when he became First Lord of the Treasury, and he went on to dominate English politics for the next two decades. During that time, the House of Commons established itself as the main decision-making body over both the House of Lords and the Monarch. In fact, Walpole's influence was mostly limited to domestic affairs. Foreign policy was more a matter of the two Secretaries of State, one for the north of Europe, the other for the south. The most senior was Charles Townsend, Secretary of State for the north, who adopted a policy of closer relations with France and Spain. French foreign policy was under the firm control of André Hercule de Fleury, who was prepared to continue cooperation with Great Britain to find negotiated solutions. An alliance between the traditional rivals, France and England, helped promote peace on the continent, although it was domestically unpopular and there were still significant differences regarding their interests in North America. 
One advantage for the English is that France agreed not to support the claims of James Stuart, the old pretender. Under papal protection in Italy, James drew up detailed plans for an invasion of Britain, but his plans were betrayed to London by the French. In June 1721, England, France and Spain together joined together in a triple alliance. Part of the motivation for the English was to put pressure on Emperor Charles VI, who was proving uncooperative and even hostile towards Hanoverian interests in Germany. From Charles' point of view, he was concerned about Hanover and Prussia together forming a strong Protestant bloc in North Germany. In the constantly shifting sands of European diplomacy, Philip V of Spain, unhappy with the Triple Alliance, surprised the rest of the continent by forming an alliance with Austria in 1725, the First Treaty of Vienna. Emperor Charles VI made a deal with his old rival Philip V, whereby Spain recognised the pragmatic sanction in exchange for rather vague claims of Austrian support for Spanish claims against Britain over American trade, Gibraltar and Menorca. In response, France, England, Hanover and Prussia formed their own alliance, the Alliance of Hanover. The chief minister in France, Fleury, working closely with the English, secured a general settlement. In return for recognition of the pragmatic sanction, the English and Spanish got the emperor to agree to close down his nascent overseas trading company, the Austin Company, since it was a competitor to their own companies. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. In 1727, George I died and was succeeded by his son. In foreign policy matters, George II was less concerned about Russia and more inclined to work with Vienna. Robert Walpole took more direct control of British foreign policy and tried to reconcile differences with Austria and Spain. 
In March 1731, the Second Treaty of Vienna was signed between Great Britain and Emperor Charles VI on behalf of the Habsburg monarchy. When Spain joined the alliance in July, Charles agreed to recognise Elizabeth Farnese's elder son, Don Carlos, as Duke of Parma and Piacenza. The French were furious at Britain's diplomatic manoeuvres, especially as it had been consulted in secret, without their consultation. The treaty appeared to harm the interests of France by its guarantee of Charles's pragmatic sanction. Although Walpole had not intended to break with France in making this treaty, this is what happened. The diplomatic cooperation between France and England was now coming to an end, and Paris and Madrid came together in a Bourbon alliance known as the Family Compact in the year 1733. This signalled an intention to cooperate against Britain overseas, but its main aim was a common front in Europe, where both parties hoped to make gains from the Habsburgs. The French leadership were growing in confidence with Louis XV in adulthood, and the economy and administration on the mend after difficult times after Louis XIV's death. They could once more consider military expansion. Conflict between France and Habsburgs could well have happened over several areas of disagreement, such as issues in Germany or Italy. The trigger for war was the death of Augustus II, Elector of Saxony and King of Poland, in February 1733, which led to the War of Polish Succession, 1733-35. Augustus the Strong's ambitious plans at his election to the Polish throne in 1697 had failed. He had abandoned his scheme to make Poland an absolute hereditary monarchy after his army's woeful performance in the Great Northern War. Polish-Lithuanian magnates held onto their power, in international affairs, Poland had become dependent on Russia. He wanted his son, also called Augustus, to succeed him, but knew that the French were committed to supporting Louis XV's father-in-law, Stanislav Leszczynski. As a native Pole, Leszczynski was elected as king by the Polish Diet in September 1733. This provoked the immediate intervention of Russia, who were determined to maintain their hold on Poland as their satellite. Leszczynski fled, and Russian troops forced a new election, in which Augustus the Strong's son was elected as Augustus III. The war in Poland was brief. Russian troops soon took most of Poland for Augustus. France sent a force to secure Danzig, where Leszczynski had fled. Before long, however, he was back in French exile. France made little effort to retain Poland, where very little fighting actually occurred, but they concentrated on the Rhine and on Italy, the real objects of French interest. France declared war on the Emperor and quickly occupied Lorraine. At the same time, French forces joined up with those of Philip V of Spain and Charles Emmanuel II of Savoy, Piedmont and Sardinia, whose reward was to be the Duchy of Milan. Together they launched an assault on Habsburg positions in Italy. Vienna expected help from Britain, but Walpole, who had an aversion to military action, offered only to mediate rather than to fight. The Austrians, isolated, therefore had to rely on their own limited resources. The Emperor's defence of the Rhine, led by Prince Eugene of Savoy, 
and in cooperation with a number of German princes, was mostly effective, although the French took the fortresses of Philipsburg and Kael on the Rhine. Imperial territories in Italy, however, were quickly overrun, and Don Carlos conquered the Kingdom of Naples in 1734. By the autumn of 1735, only the fortress of Mantua remained in Austrian hands, and the imperial army, hopelessly outnumbered, was forced to retreat to Trentino in the north. In the end, it was only the arrival of a substantial Russian force in the Platinate in August 1735 which saved Austria from a more crushing defeat. A preliminary peace treaty was signed at Vienna on October 1735, in which the greatest implications were for Italy. Naples and Sicily were ceded to Don Carlos, with the condition that they would never revert to the Spanish crown. Lombardy was restored to Austria, except for two provinces, Novara and Tortona, which were given to Charles Emmanuel of Savoy. The loss of significant imperial territory in the south of the peninsula was offset by the fact that the Austrians were able to consolidate their hold on northern Italy. The work to succession in Tuscany was transferred to Francis Stephen, Duke of Lorraine, who reluctantly had to agree to relinquish his own duchy to the French in exchange for marrying Maria Theresa. The acquisition of Lorraine was a significant strategic gain for France and considered a diplomatic triumph for Fleury. Although Britain had nothing to gain immediately from intervention, her failure to do so allowed the French to gain significantly in diplomatic authority on the continent. The Bourbons were not to express any gratitude for British neutrality, while the Austrians felt betrayed. Austria had lost heavily in the War of the Polish Succession, but her humiliation was by no means complete. Russia's military support in Germany and her acceptance of the pragmatic sanction had come at a heavy price. Russia now expected Austria to support her southward expansion against the Ottomans. The Austrians only reluctantly joined Russia in a war against the Ottomans in 1735, well aware of the dangers of replacing a weak Ottoman Empire with a strong Russian presence to the southeast. The joint Russian-Austrian offensive on the Ottomans was badly coordinated and went badly from the beginning. The Imperial Army, which was poorly led, bore the brunt of a Turkish counter-offensive and in July 1739 suffered defeat at the Battle of Grotschka. They retreated first to Belgrade and then back across the Danube, leaving the Ottomans to besiege the Serbian capital. In the peace agreed in September 1739, the Austrians fared particularly badly, losing Belgrade and northern Serbia, as well as territory in Wallachia and Bosnia. Though Austria had risen to become a major power between 1683 and 1718 through military victory, the defeats of the war against the Ottomans demonstrated all too clearly her vulnerabilities. Emperor Charles VI had allowed his military to decline and failed to find new commanders of the status of Prince Eugene of Savoy, who passed away in 1736. Significantly, the loss of prestige from these setbacks was almost worse than the territorial loss. Writes Stephen Beller in A Concise History of Austria, quote, All the main European powers had recognised the pragmatic sanction by the time of Charles VI's death in 1740, but the perceived and real weakness of the Habsburg 
made effectiveness questionable in the ruthless dynastic state politics of mid-18th century Europe. End quote. There was time for the eruption of one additional conflict before the War of Austrian Succession of 1740. It has the unusual name of the War of Jenkins' Ear, coined by Thomas Carlyle and refers to a Captain Jenkins, who is reported to have shown to the English Parliament his ear, pickled in a jar which he claimed had been cut off by a Spanish privateer in the Americas. In fact, there is no evidence that the ear was displayed in Parliament, and the loss of the captain's ear occurred back in 1731. The incident had no great impact until eight years later, when opposition politicians played it up, deliberately stoking outrage against Spain in the belief that a victorious war would improve Britain's trading opportunities in the Caribbean. The trade in question focused on the West Indian islands and parts of South and North America, which had become vast storehouses for tropical products, sugar, rum, tobacco, cotton, wood and dyes, and where there was demand for European manufactured goods of West African slaves. The agents of Britain's South Sea Company were regularly carrying out more trade than was permitted under the terms of the Treaty of Utrecht, which ended the War of Spanish Succession and dictated commercial rights in the Americas. Madrid tried to suppress this illicit trade, but lacking enough royal ships to patrol the waters, employed the notorious Guadacostas, Coast Guard ships to stop and search any foreign vessel found in or near Spanish-American waters. These Guadacostas acted as little more than pirates, preying on British ships trading legitimately as well as smugglers, and they often maltreated captured crews. British merchants began a furious campaign for government action in 1737, and this rose in intensity over the next two years. Demands for British traders and an end to Spanish searching of their ships developed into cries for a commercial and colonial war on Spain, and a revision of the terms of Utrecht. At a time of stagnation and decline in British trade, they held the simple mercantilist belief that the nation's wealth depended on grabbing as much as possible from a fixed amount of world trade. Brendan Sims, in his book, Three Victories and a Defeat, The Rise and Fall of the British Empire, writes that the War of Jenkins' Ear had become a byword for political chauvinism and the increased importance of commercial and overseas concern in British politics. It followed a prolonged debate about British strategic priorities in which Tories and radical Whigs contrasted the naval and insular virtue of true Englishmen with the continental entanglements and apparent timidity of Walpole's ministry. The campaign against Spanish depredations was ostensibly about trade, but it was also about much more than that. To be sure, straightforward xenophobia was an important part of the picture. The 1730s saw a renewed surge of anti-French and anti-Spanish sentiment, and the classic themes of continental absolutism and popery were reprised. But there's also more subtle arguments about honour. It was widely felt that Britain had lost face in Europe in the war of Polish succession, and that her predicament on the high seas was an indication of universal contempt which could only be dispelled by war. In spite of the strong passions among the public, British statesmen were reluctant to go to war, but they eventually gave in to pressure and declared war on Spain. 
The war began well for the British with the capture of Portobello in Panama in November 1739. The victory was widely celebrated in Britain. The song Royal Britannia was written in 1740 to mark the occasion in the suburb of Portobello in Edinburgh and Portobello Road in London, among the places in Britain named after the event. Buoyed by success, opposition politicians now pressed a reluctant Walpole to launch larger naval expeditions to the Gulf of Mexico. Larger expeditions, however, were far less successful. The siege of Cartagena ended in failure and the loss of life of many British sailors, mainly by disease. In the event, the War of Jenkins' Ear was quickly overshadowed and subsumed by the War of Austrian Succession, which broke out in 1740. British operations against Caribbean and South American ports between 1739 and 1742 achieved little, and until the peace in 1748, further action was limited to raids on shipping and attempts to isolate Spain from her colonies. Distance, climate and disease proved the main obstacles, but the Spanish put up a spirited defence. Next week I turn back to events on the continent, an invasion of Silesia by Prussia in 1740, which triggered the Austrian War of Succession. Today's music is from the Italian composer Antonio Vivaldi, who was born in March 1678 in Venice and died in July 1741. I played his concerto for bassoon in A minor and finished today with his concerto number 11, in C minor. I hope you can join me next week for the third part of the War of Austrian Succession.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.